Uh, great to be with you. My name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is uh, towards the end of the New Testament, and as I mentioned earlier, we are beginning a new series called Resilient this morning, where over the next uh, couple of months through the summer into the fall, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter because I can think of no uh, better place in the Bible to look when we ask the question of what does it look like to live as Christians in a world that is chaotic and is often hostile. Um, we often, I think, as uh, if you were to ask uh, many Christians, what uh, book of the Bible would you go to to summarize or to kind of get the most succinct view of Christian uh, belief and teaching? Uh, I think most Christians would say the book of Romans is the place to go for Christian doctrine summarized. Uh, well, the book of First Peter is to Christian living what Romans is to Christian believing. It is the, the gold standard for uh, life in a non-Christian world. So I want to invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to read um, the first 12 verses of First Peter chapter 1. Let's give our attention to God's word together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we pray now that by the power of your Spirit, these words, these ancient words, would come to life in our hearts and in our lives. Would you remind us who we are in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, many years ago, my wife Ashley and I, who uh, was here a moment ago, my wife and I uh, moved 
across the sea. We packed up everything. We, we were relatively newly married. We'd been married for just about a year. We packed everything that we were going to take with us into four boxes, and we got on an airplane, and we flew to Scotland, where we lived and went to grad school and lived there for three years. And it was a, a wonderful time living in, a, in a, another country, in a different culture. It was a wonderful and yet a bewildering experience. And I will never forget the first time I ever got behind the wheel of a car in Scotland. Now, if you don't know this, in Scotland, you drive on the left-hand side of the street. And so if you can think about the experience of driving a car for the first time, maybe 15 with a learner's permit, and you get in the car and you're driving and you are kind of hyper aware of everything that you're doing and supposed to be doing. But over time, that becomes second nature. And now you can drive, you know, without really, sometimes you, you stop and think, how did I get here? I don't even remember. Um, it just becomes second nature. So obviously, as a 23-year-old, I had gotten to the point where I was very proficient at driving, and now I get in the car on the left-hand side of the street, and I'm driving on the wrong side of the street, and I'm shifting with the wrong hand, and it's, a, it's an incredibly bewildering experience where things that used to be uh, second nature have become very, very strange to me. And at one point, I'm driving down the, the freeway, and Ashley sitting next to me says, how fast are you going? And I thought, I can't look at the speedometer. There's just too much going on. I can't take my eyes off the road. And, and there, in, in Scotland, there's roundabouts everywhere. And so you're driving down a freeway, and there's a roundabout that you hit at you know, 60 miles an hour. And sometimes you come out of a roundabout into another roundabout, and you're going the wrong way. And it's very challenging and all-consuming and exhausting. And so this particular time, the first time I drove, we got to our destination about an hour away and I was exhausted and I pulled into the parking lot. And as I pulled into the parking lot, coming out at me, there was a car facing right towards me. And I thought, you know, oh my gosh. And I just kind of, in a moment of exertion and exhaustion, said, what is this idiot doing? And Ashley smacks me and says, you are on the wrong side of the street. Uh, I was the idiot who was in the wrong place. I wonder if you have ever had that experience of being in the wrong place, of knowing that you are not where you're supposed to be. Uh, maybe you've been invited to a party and the, you show up, but the person who invited you there, the only person you know, isn't there yet, and you kind of wonder, why am I here and I don't feel at home, I don't feel like I'm in the right place, why am I here and what am I supposed to do? Maybe you're working at a job and you're doing your best, you're doing good work, but it just doesn't feel like a good fit. And you wonder, why am I here, I feel out of place here. Maybe you're in a relationship and you just know that something's got to change. Uh, something's not working. You don't feel, you feel out of place. Maybe you grew up in a in a family where uh, you always felt misunderstood, um, you felt like you were in the wrong place. It's a very deeply disorienting experience. In many ways, 2020 has felt like a year. <laughs> it's felt like many years, hasn't it? But 2020, we're almost halfway through it. It's felt like a year where we are just constantly in the wrong place, where everything is out of sorts. Things are not the way they should be. 
there is so much going on and nothing is going the way that we think it should. And this feeling of being disoriented leads to fear and anxiety, which produces uh, division and polarization. And we're living through a time now where it feels like the world has lost its mind and the chaos and destruction of what's going on seems to just dominate everything else. And about the only thing that people can agree on now is that things are not going the way they ought to be going. It feels like everything is wrong and we are out of sorts and in the wrong place. And the reason that I mention all of this is because 1 Peter is a book that it's written to people who know that they are in the wrong place. They are not at home. It's a book written to Christians who feel out of place, who are experiencing persecution for their faith. We can summarize the message of 1 Peter uh, like this. 1 Peter is a book about how to follow Jesus in a hostile world. 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, who you know, was one of Jesus' followers. He lived and followed Jesus and witnessed his life for three years. He, uh, he, he you know, was a, was a witness to Jesus' crucifixion and his, his resurrection. Jesus, uh, Peter was the first person to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, and after the, the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and fills believers, Peter becomes really the lead pastor of the first congregation of Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And so from 30 or 33 AD, uh, for the next 15 years or so, through the 30s and 40s, Peter leads the church in Jerusalem. But around the year 45 AD, we think, he leaves Jerusalem and he eventually makes his way to Rome. And he continues to teach and to minister um, in the city of Rome until he is killed, he is martyred sometime around AD 65. And so sometime when he was in Rome, before he was killed, probably somewhere in the early 60s AD, Peter writes the letter of 1 Peter. And he writes this letter to Christians who are living in Asia Minor, those cities that I read earlier, Bithynia and Cappadocia, um, the region is called Asia. Uh, it, 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 this area is a kind of a province uh, in Asia Minor, in what is modern-day Turkey, kind of north of the Taurus Mountains, away from the Aegean Sea. And Peter writes this letter to these Christians in these five cities. And these people are Christians. They are people who have put their trust in Jesus and yet now, because of their faith in Jesus, they are experiencing opposition. They are facing social ostracism. They are being slandered because of their faith. They are, uh, their honor and standing in the community is in jeopardy. Their livelihoods and their ability to provide for their families is under threat, all because of their faith in Jesus. And of course, when that happens, there's this temptation to reevaluate faith in the gospel. Is Jesus really worth it? And so Peter writes to encourage these Christians and to encourage us to persevere when we live in a hostile world. 
And essentially what he is saying, he says this literally a little bit later on, is don't be surprised when you face opposition to your faith. Don't be surprised when you feel like you're out of place because of your faith in Jesus. Uh, Because you live in a society that is trying to shape you into its mold. You are living in a society that is trying to shape you into its mold, but you are in the process of being shaped into the image of Christ. And so, of course, you are going to bump up against opposition. But the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the paradigm for your life now. And so just as Jesus suffered and then entered into glory, so your life as a Christian will be marked by enduring trials before you are exalted. This is the perspective that is key to developing resilience, to thriving when the world around you is losing its mind. And so Peter begins, perhaps, in the most fundamental place imaginable by reminding us of our identity in Christ. There is nothing more fundamental than answering the question of who are you? If you and I are going to remain grounded in a culture that is shifting to and fro, that is where we are being pushed and pulled, and you've got right and left screaming at each other, and every day there's a new headline with news that seems to be going from bad to worse to worst, If you are going to live in that environment and going to remain calm and grounded and committed to Jesus and you're going to thrive in that context, you've got to remember who you are. So I want to look with you at what Peter says about Christian identity. And what I want you to see in these verses is what is Christian identity first? What is the nature of Christian identity? But secondly, what is the source of Christian identity? And then thirdly, what is the test of Christian identity. So first, Christian identity. What is it? Who are we? As Christians, how are we supposed to live? What is the nature of our identity? And listen, everything hangs on this question. And if if you don't understand what Peter says about the nature of Christian identity, the rest of the book will make no sense to you. Because what Peter is saying is that as Christians, we are exiles. Look at verse 1. You know, we have this tendency almost to skip over this introduction to an epistle in the Bible. Like, it's just religious words where he's really just saying hi. But but listen to what he says. To the elect exiles in the dispersion. These people scattered throughout the provinces. What he's saying is that Christians are exiles. He says the same thing again in in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... And so what he's saying is this, if you are a Christian, no matter where you live or where you came from, you are an exile. Now, it's very interesting because the word that Peter uses here uh, for exile, that's translated exile in English, is a very specific word. And you know probably by this point that oftentimes a, a word in the Greek language, in the original Greek, uh, implies more meaning than can be conveyed by just one English word. And, and so uh, it's important to, to kind of get at this a little bit because there is no direct equivalent word in English for the word Peter uses. Exile is a pretty good translation, um, but the Greek word is more specific than an exile because we can think of lots of reasons somebody might be exiled. You might be in exile because you're wanted for a crime in one country and so you go to another country to live as an exile so you 
aren't caught. Um, you could be on the run. You could be a political exile, like a refugee. Um, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. The word that Peter uses here is a very specific word that refers to someone who does not have legal citizenship in the place that they live. Okay, that's what the word means. An exile, maybe another way to translate it would be with the words resident alien. Somebody who has a green card. Um, somebody who has permission to live here but is not a citizen of this place. You know, um, if you are an exile, if you are a resident alien, you are not a tourist. You know, you're not just here on vacation, you're not just here to relax and enjoy what's going on. Um, no, you live here. You live here. You work here. You are raising a family here. You are contributing to the economy and participating in the life of the culture. And yet, there's a sense in which it all feels really weird. People use words that you don't understand. The customs are foreign to you. You have language and customs that are different from what's happening locally in the place that you live. And so because you're not from here, you always feel a bit like an outsider. You always think this place is kind of weird and people think you're weird. And that's what it means to live uh, as a resident alien. The Bible is saying that if you are a Christian, no matter where you live, no matter where you come from, you live as an exile, as a resident alien. You are not a citizen. So what's the difference between an exile and a citizen? Well, as I mentioned, uh, when Ashley and I were 23, newly married, we moved to a foreign country, we moved to Scotland, and we went through immigration at the airport when we landed in the UK for the first time. And when we went through immigration, we presented all of our documents, and we had letters that said, you know, from our schools that said, we've been accepted to grad programs here, and we, we produced a letter that said, this is where we're gonna live, we have a place to live, and we have financial documents that said, this is how we're gonna financially make this Thing work and they looked at everything and they said okay that all looks good you can come in and then they stamped in our passport with this huge stamp th this thing that said no recourse to public funds they stamped it in our passport now what in the world does that mean well um, what it means is that the United Kingdom is a welfare state and so if you are a citizen of the United Kingdom you have access to certain rights like public housing a state pension, things like that. And what the government was saying is you are welcome here, but because you are not a citizen, you do not have the right to those privileges that a citizen has. You are welcome, but this is not your home. To be in exile means you are welcome, but you're not at home. Now, think about this, because this is such an incredibly crucial distinction. Our identity is that we live as exiles, not as citizens, that we are welcome in every place that we live, and yet we are not at home in any place that we live, despite the fact, I mean, I was born like two miles from the place I'm standing, and yet what Peter is saying is, this is not my home. What is that distinction between an exile and a citizen being welcome but not being at home look like? Well, imagine with me, if you would, that you are at a park and maybe you've gone to a park and you're sitting there with your family having a picnic and some other people come to the park and they start setting things up and more and more people begin to get there and they begin banging on stuff and you realize, great, we just sat down next to a drum circle that's going on at this park. 
everybody's banging on stuff and it's getting loud and you're sitting there going like, I, I really wish you weren't doing this right here by me, but I mean, whatever, like it's a public park, do, it, do whatever you want, right? I wish you weren't doing that, but it's nothing I can do about it. Now, if the same thing happens, but you're sitting in your living room, you're sitting in your living room and people show up and they start setting stuff up and banging on stuff. There's all of a sudden a drum circle in your living room. You would have a very different reaction when you'd say, excuse me, like, what do you think you're doing here? Get out. Get out of here. Because in our homes, we have certain rights that we don't have elsewhere. As exiles, we are welcome, but we are not home. A citizen interacts with a society on the basis of their rights while an exile is welcome but not home and cannot interact with the society on the basis of those rights. Now, I know, I know that um, given how incredibly polarized and politically charged our culture is right now, this is going to make some of us feel very nervous, even me just saying this, but please, I'm begging you to hear me on this because the frustration that that might cause you is coming from the Bible, not from me. So please don't shoot the messenger. Because we have to understand this distinction. We have to understand that this is so clearly what God is saying to us. Because if we get frustrated by the politically charged nature of our culture, we will miss the good news of what this implies about us. If you are a citizen, and things aren't going the way that you want, you fight it because a right that you believe you possess is being taken away from you. But if you're in exile and things aren't going the way that you want, what do you do? Well, first of all, you're not really that surprised. And that's always the key to what Peter is saying here. Uh, what's the phrase? Um, all frustration comes from unmet expectation. And so if you interact with the world, knowing ourselves to be exiles, our expectation is completely changed. We don't interact with the society that we live in saying, I have a right to these privileges. It changes our expectation. It doesn't change what's right or wrong. It simply changes our expectations of what we will receive. And so we're not surprised when things don't go our way. So instead of being frustrated when things don't go our way, because we're not surprised by it, we are free to advocate for what's right without a kind of chip on our shoulder that says, I'm entitled to this. And that simple change of tone will make your interaction in society far more attractive, persuasive. I cannot overstate the importance of this distinction in our time. Christians, Peter says, are exiles, not citizens. Because when our culture is as polarized as it is, um, and when our, culture is, it is, it, it, when our culture is as polarized as it is, and everything, regardless of how ordinary it might seem, it gets pulled to the right or to the left and politicized and pulled into ideology. The temptation for Christians to conform to the polarization of our time is enormous. And we will not be able to resist the temptation, the kind of draw to just get sucked into the stream 
of our culture without great intention and clarity about our identity. If you don't know who you are, you will simply get sucked into the stream of whatever is going on around you. Christians who see their identity in terms of citizens, who interact with the world on the basis of their rights, will be increasingly frustrated that reality never lives up to their expectations. But Christians who see their identity as exiles know that they are, not, uh, that they are welcome but not home. And so being rooted in Christ, you can remain calm and bring peace into the chaos of a world that is going mad. This is who we are, Christians. This is fundamental to the way that we exist in the world. Christians who are resilient are those who know that they are exiles. When you know that you're an exile, you know that you're weird. You don't have to try to pretend like you've got it all together because people see you as weird and you know that you're weird because you're not home. Christians who know that they're exiles know that um, you're not totally going to fit in. You can never completely settle in and go with the flow. And because of this, you are truly free to live as God has called you to live. That is the nature of our identity. We are exiles. We are resident aliens. We are welcome, but we're not home. So the question that that rises, raises then is how do you get this identity? How do, you, how do you get a Christian identity? How do we form an identity? And this is huge because as you know, Identity formation is an incredibly hot and, again, polarizing issue in our culture. And if I can risk saying something blunt here, our culture has got it completely wrong. And as Christians, we have to understand this so we don't get sucked into the stream. Stay with me here for a second because I want you to see the beauty of what Peter is saying here, how, how good uh, the news is he says about the way that we form an identity. But in order to see the beauty of it, I want to I first kind of sketch the contrast, the, the background here. Um, because traditionally, and, and there, there are basically, I would say, a traditional and a modern way to form an identity. A traditional identity, uh, traditionally the way that you built an identity was trying really hard to live up to a set of external expectations. Uh, whether it's the, the expectations of your family, or your society, or your religion. You say, these are the things that are expected of me, and I'm a good person if I work really hard and I live up to these expectations. And this is um, not the predominant view in the West anymore in 2020, I don't think. But if you grew up in a, you know, South America, or Asia, or... Um, Africa, it, it, it might shape your identity, or maybe if you're, if you're like older than 55 or 60, this might be the way you think about your identity, or if temperamentally you're a more traditional sort of a person, this might still resonate with you. And you might feel this pressure to build your identity by living up to a set of expectations so that you can be a good person, and I'm not really even going to critique this, I'm just going to sort of assert that that's not the way the Bible says that uh, Christian identity is formed. It's not. A lot of people think that what we've got to do is bring people from this modern identity back to a traditional identity and live up to the standards of Christianity, and that's not what the Bible says about how we shape an identity. 
Okay, that's the traditional way to form an identity. Now, if you're uh, Gen X, if you are roughly 40 to 55 years old in that range, people in this range tend to believe that the way that you form an identity is by discovering your true self. Discovering your true self so you don't live up to other people's expectations. You have to reject other people's expectations and you've got to look inside and you've got to discover who you really are. The meaning of life um, is to be free and so you build an identity through self-discovery. Or now, if you're a little bit younger, it's moved even further. And so if you're below the age of about 40 or so, people believe, people tend to believe that the meaning of life is to be true to yourself. And so you don't form an identity by, uh, by looking inside yourself and discovering yourself. You form an identity by creating it for yourself. Um, you know, it, it's all about justice, and it's about creating who you are, and it's about including marginalized people in everything that you do. Uh, and so today, you might, be, uh, you might be one thing today, but a couple weeks or a couple months down the road, you might recreate yourself into a, uh, a different sort of person. And so this leads, of course, to all sorts of, um, of issues that, that have become very prevalent in our world of... Um, uh, you know, especially related to gender and sexuality. Um, but the idea is this, that um, you are free to be whoever you want to be. And that sounds very inclusive on the surface, but it falls apart very, very quickly. And if you need any evidence of the failure of this way of shaping an identity, all you have to do is look at the internet. Anywhere on the internet, because on the internet, what we do is we scream at each other because I scream at you because you are not respecting who I am. And um, we shame each other if you are not true to who you truly are, if you're not true to your identity. And it's impossible to really have a conversation with somebody that you disagree with because instead of critiquing a view, an issue, uh, because you are who what you create yourself to be, I'm not creating an issue. I'm creating you, uh, or I'm critiquing. I'm, I'm not critiquing you. Um, I said that wrong. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not critiquing your view. I'm critiquing you. I'm critiquing the essence of who you are. Um, and so we get very quickly offended, and we just argue about it. So these are the three basic ways that humanity, over its long history, has uh, tried to build identities. And they look very, very different from one another. Um, self-actualization, um, self-discovery, and self-creation, okay? These three ways of forming an identity, they look different from one another on the surface, and yet they all have one thing in common, and that is self, right? They are all... Um, they are all built, whether it's a traditional or a modern identity, it's all based on self. It's all based on you. It's all based on what you manage to accomplish. And so the way that the world thinks about identity, identity is something that is achieved. Identity is a DIY project. It is something that you must do, whether from by conforming to externals or discovering it or creating it yourself. It's a DIY project. Your identity is all about and none of those is a biblical option. So what's the alternative? Well, look 
with me at what Peter says. To the elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it goes on and on. But what's the point? Uh, the point is this. Who is the source of our identity according to the Bible? In the traditional identity, in the modern identity, I am the source of my identity. It is something I must achieve. But Peter says you were elected by God. You were chosen by him. He knew you before you knew yourself. You were set apart by the Holy Spirit. You were sprinkled by the blood of Christ. It's by his mercy that you have new life in Christ. Everything Peter says points to this. The source of Christian identity isn't you, it's God. Worldly identity is achieved. Christian identity is simply received. It is based not on what I accomplished, but who Jesus is and what he has accomplished in my place. I mean, think about what it means to be a Christian. As you enter the Christian church through baptism, God puts his name upon you. God gives you his name. He gives you his identity. Revelation 21 says that if you are in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Christian identity is secure because it is not based on you, um, on you and your performance. It is based on Jesus and his performance. It's based on his perfect life. It's based on his sacrificial death. It's based on his resurrection. And it's based on his ascension into glory. All that he did, according to the scriptures, Jesus did for you. And this is what marks your entire existence. And the problem for many Christians today is that we have cobbled together a DIY identity and then we sprinkle some Christian Jesus stuff on top instead of receiving an identity as, as, uh, of Jesus as the foundation of all that we are and the entirety of our lives marked by who he is. Jesus is the person, friends, who lost his glory Jesus is the person who gave up his power. Jesus is the uh, person who laid aside all the privilege that had uh, come to him, Philippians 2 tells us. And instead he came and he died on a cross for us. He paid the penalty for our inhumanity to God and to each other. And because of that, when I believe in him, because he has taken my place, he has paid my debt, he has given me his record. When I look to God, from the moment I believe in God, I am as loved by God as I ever will be. Now, if you are in Christ, God loves you as much as he will love you a million years from now. When you're perfect, God loves you as much now as he will then. And that is the fundamental thing about who you are. If that defines you, what it means is the ups and downs of your current experience and performance don't define you. This is the only way to source an identity that gives us true freedom. That's the irony. As the especially modern but even traditional identity is an effort to find a life of freedom, the only true way to find uh, 
a life of freedom is to receive our identity from Jesus. Because when you receive your identity from Jesus, um, let me say it like this, receiving your identity from Jesus is the only way to uh, source an identity with a stable foundation because it's not based on you and you're shifting you know, circumstances and, and relative failures and successes, but it's based on who he is. It's the only thing that will set us free from building an identity around ourselves and our race or our sexual orientation or our gender or our political affiliation. God loves you. He chose you. He, uh, he picked you out to be his beloved. Will you receive his love as the basis of who you are? Instead of trying to live up to external standards which are impossible, or living up to your own standards which are even worse, would you receive from God the identity that he gives you as a Christian? Christians can live as exiles, welcome but at home, any place we find ourselves, because our identity is received, not achieved. So, do you have an identity like that? Do you have an identity that is stable and resilient, that is truly free, because it's not crushed by shifting circumstances? How would you know if you have that sort of an identity? Well, the third thing that I want you to see, and I'm going to have to be really quick about this, is the test of Christian identity. Uh, and, and this is a theme throughout the book of 1 Peter, so I'm going to summarize this briefly, but we will come back to it because it's a theme that carries on throughout 1 Peter. For the sake of time, if you look at verses 6 and 7, you see there that, that Peter says that there is a test of your faith that actually refines your faith, solidifies your identity. Well, what, what is that test? What is the test of your identity? Verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. Verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, even though, in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. The test of your identity is this. Can you hold together both suffering and joy? Can, are you a person who can uh, experience difficulty, go through trials, experience hardship, and still experience joy, still praise God, still give thanks for all that he does for you. Because the reality is that both the traditional identity and the modern identity is destroyed by suffering. If we build our identity on our performance and things are going well, then great, but not just like, hey, this is great, like, I am great if everything is going great in my life, like existentially, I am a great person. If I build my identity and things are going great, then I am great. But if circumstances don't go our way, it rocks us to the core. Because it either means that we have failed to be the people that we think we truly are, or it rocks us because what it means is that circumstances have victimized us. It's not my fault, it's the fault of everything going on around me. So we get frustrated and we fight back. And that is the world that we are living in right now, friends. So how are you doing? How are you doing holding together joy and suffering, praise with trial? Because the reality is that we are all, in some ways, as we go through this collective, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> suffering in some way, shape, or form. We have all experienced loss of some kind. 
Are you holding together joy and suffering? What has this trial brought to the surface? I have a friend, there was a conference in, um, I think it was in January, uh, or maybe early February in Kuala Lumpur, and it was primarily Christian pastors from China who can't gather in China, and so this conference was held in Kuala Lumpur, but there were uh, you know, a, a number of uh, Western pastors there too, and I have a friend who uh, was, is one of the Western pastors who was there. And of course, by late January, early February 2020, um, the coronavirus was um, not really on our radar, but it was, it was spreading in China already. And my friend who was there interacting with these Chinese pastors, he said this, he said, the response of the Chinese pastors and leaders to the coronavirus was consistently, God is humbling us and calling us to repent for our sins. But American Christians respond with anger, control, and self-righteousness. Friends, how are we doing responding to this trial? Are we complaining? Are we blame-shifting? Are we increasingly anxious? Are we holding together joy in the midst of the trial? A DIY identity is inherently fragile. A DIY identity is inherently fragile. It doesn't have the resources to handle suffering. So rather than dealing with our weaknesses, we just double down. But a gospel identity that is received from God is strengthened through suffering. Verse 8 says, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I will, I, I will unpack more fully what that means in the coming weeks. But you can't miss this, that... A gospel identity says that suffering is the path to glory. How can that possibly be true? Well, it's true because Jesus was the true exile. Jesus is the true exile who has come into this world but been rejected by it. And his life is the paradigm for our lives. If we are in him, we cannot expect our lives, we should not expect our lives to look differently than the life of our Savior. If your identity is not something you made, but it is, um, you know, or, or even if, if you kind of have this Christian modern identity hybrid where your identity is what you do, but you throw some Bible verses on top, and yeah, I believe these things, but it's about who I really am because I've made myself. But if instead you, who you are, is identified by who Jesus is, then our lives will increasingly look like the life of Jesus. And just as Jesus suffered, and then entered into glory, so we too, who are his followers, will suffer before we are exalted. It is that experience of suffering, of refining. Just like when you go to the gym, your muscles are strengthened by being put under pressure. Your identity, your faith is strengthened. You are led into glory through trials, through pressure. So let me finish with this simple analogy that you all understand. We all know that a caterpillar... It's this weird, wormy-looking thing. And a caterpillar one day builds a cocoon, and he hides away in the cocoon during this time. And if you open up the cocoon and set the caterpillar free, you kill the caterpillar. But if the caterpillar remains in this cocoon, a caterpillar will be transformed and emerge eventually as a beautiful butterfly. And my hope and my prayer is that we would all embrace 
all that God is doing in the midst of this strange time. That we wouldn't fight back against it, but we would embrace what he is doing through it. That we would be joyful in our present trials, rather than fighting against them so that the church might emerge transformed and beautiful. Wouldn't that be an incredible outcome? Is it possible that that is what God is doing through this crisis? All we can do is look to him with hope while we follow him into the life that he's called us to live. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you and praise you that um, you give us guidance. You speak to us. In your words, in your word, there's wisdom. There is good advice. But there's not just good advice on what to do. There are, there, there's uh, resources to actually become the people you've called us to be, to receive as an identity who you say we are in Jesus. And so I pray, God, that as a church, we would listen to your word. Would we listen to you? Would we hear you? Would we pray to you? Would we um, be shaped by what you say about us? That we might endure what you are allowing us to experience now, even with joy, God, and emerge at some point transformed people doing the beautiful work that you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.